Just James Horror Review. I'm your host, Just James, and today it's Book Review Day! Welcome back, everyone, to the Just James Horror Review. I'm your host, Just James. I got this book a couple of months ago from author Chad Miller. It's a 2022 release called Doyle and Brum in Prisoner of Fear. It is book one, part of a series, something I didn't realize until I read through the whole thing, and we'll talk about that later, but I do also want to... Let me, let me pause here for a second. It's Doyle and Brom. Brom is spelled B-R-A-H-A-M. So I went to all the pronouncethis.com and all this to try to figure out to, you know, out of respect for the name... I've seen Braham, Brahim, Braham, and I say Brahm. So it's got a little hum there at the end. So Doyle and Brahm, that's how I'm going to say it for the rest of the episode. Hopefully I'm not uh, butchering that name, but it happens. Anyway, Chad Miller is an author who hails from Delaware and is a mild-mannered pharmacist by day and a terrific horror writer by night. I will go ahead and say right off the top, I enjoyed this book. Prisoner of Fear is... It's it's like a detective novel, sort of. Um, we have these two characters, Doyle and Brom, and they do investigations, but not your typical murder mystery type investigations. They investigate the weird and the bizarre, uh, ghosts, demons, all that kind of stuff. And I really enjoyed the tone of this book and the these two characters in particular they are great big personalities i mean their names on the cover of it and it's going to be their detective series so to say so i i did enjoy those two characters doyle is going to be the 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 sherlock of this sherlock and holmes group and then brahm is going to be the more hard-knuckled serious you know ying to his yang and this makes for a really good setup for these stories because you have these two guys that attack these, you know, these investigations from two very different angles. They both kind of have their own beliefs. And even though Brahm is kind of the tougher character in the story, it's more often that he's, I'm going to say, more frightened or intimidated by different situations because of his belief in the weird and all that kind of stuff. But Doyle, where he's just so calculated and all about the facts that he is able to keep a cool head and, you know, really compartmentalize the things that he's seeing... And look at him from that scientific lens to debunk all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like the X-Files. Remember Mulder, how he always says, I want to believe? That's really the how I perceive this Doyle character as, you know, he wants to believe. He wants to investigate all this stuff, and he wants more than anything for someone to prove him wrong and to show actual evidence of a, a real haunting or a ghost or a demon or something like that. So the author, Chad Miller, he's been writing for, I want to say, on his website, for 25 years, I think, is how long he's been putting stories out. Uh, this is the first thing I've ever read of his. Uh, you can go to his website. It's chadmillerauthor.com. He's also on the different social medias. You can look him up just by his name or go to his website and find his information there. He's also on Goodreads, and you can buy all of his works on Amazon. He has quite a few published stories there is one called The Void that's going to have 15 different short stories in it. So I think if you're not really ready to just dive into one title specifically, maybe check that one out and get a good feel for you know his work, his voice, all that kind of stuff. This particular book, Prisoner of Fear, is going to be published by Hear Our Voice LLC. They also have a website by the same name, so go and check out some of their other titles. But enough of all that. Let's get into this 
1889 detective novel, Doyle and Brahm, Prisoner of Fear. Something I'll add here at the beginning, you can go to his social media where he's actually pretty active. So you can see videos of him. He talks a lot about writing and publishing books and the whole business of doing all that. So if you are a writer or you're interested in that kind of stuff, definitely go and check out his different videos that he posts online about the biz. And for those of you, if you're listening for the first time, I do spoilers, okay? I'm not going to give away the whole book, but there are going to be spoilers throughout because I want to talk about parts that I liked, parts that I didn't like, things that made sense to me, things where I thought it lagged or whatever my opinion might be about this piece. So just be prepared for that. And in general, most of my series are walkthroughs. So we're going to walk through some of the story, not all of it. I don't want to give the ending away. And we'll just go from there. So starting from the very first page of this book, you're going to notice that it is a letter. And this is going to be throughout the whole entire book. So the book is written as a series of letters from the different characters that are in it. And you're able to see what each one was writing in you know, a diary or a notebook or something like that. And every character, this is how they are going to narrate the story. I knew this just from reading about the book before I started actually reading the book that this was going to be the case. I thought it was a really cool idea. I like it when stuff like that is in stories. There's old gothic tales that are written the same way that I, that I think are really neat. So I was looking forward to see how he, you know, managed and navigated this throughout the whole story. I will say the author did ask for an honest review. So that's what I want to give you. Off the bat, right off the bat, I, I enjoyed the story, so I'll say that. So anything I say that's negative, it's just a preference thing. And it's not even something negative, it's just something that I found, you know, whatever. Not bad, just something to point out, I guess. So the the letters, they're really cool. Uh, however, I will say in some parts, I felt like they weren't necessary. The letters just read like a normal narration through a story, and so they weren't really necessary. And since it's the whole entire book, there were parts where it felt like it took away from what the story could have been, or it made the letters seem a little less impactful or realistic, if that makes sense. All right, so moving on, this story is based in 1889. A lot of the language is used in that time period. The relationships between men and women and family and how people act is very much based in that time period. It all works out great. There's nothing in there that doesn't make sense. Everything sticks with that timeline and no part of that at any point gets confusing. So in the first couple of letters, we're going to learn about our main characters, Doyle and Brom. Again, like I said, Doyle is going to be our more serious, our, our Sherlock, and then Brom is going to be more of our Holmes. Again, I think that even though this shares similarities to those two, it's not a direct copycat. So don't think me saying that is, them say, is me saying that this particular book is just going to be a copycat of those two. But just as a reference point, that's kind of what you're getting into. It's, it's kind of how these two are going to act together as they go and investigate these different paranormal events. And the way I understand it, and I could be wrong about this, but I think Doyle is just, I don't think he works. I think he's just an eccentric guy with a bunch of money. Maybe that's how it was. Of course, there's all kinds of rumors about who he is and what he does and what his life's like and his private life and, and all these things. But no one can really verify because nobody really knows him personally. So it's all just rumors. And even his partner, Brahm, says that he's an extremely eccentric guy and there's things that he doesn't even know about him, but that he loves these adventures that he gets to take with him. Now, Brahm, his name is Thomas. Thomas, he says in there that he's a writer but for an organization, like he's an organizational writer or he writes law books or something like that. I'm sorry, I'm blanking out now. But he, his profession is just to where he writes for a living. 
but not stories. He's writing, you know, facts, factual stuff. And I think this distinction between the two characters is important because it shows us that Thomas, if nothing else, just through his profession, is all about just the facts and writing down what he can see and what can be proven. And he just draws a very hard line in that belief. Whereas you have someone like Doyle who takes a very wide lens and he's able to, you know, take in the entire scene and in, in everything that surrounds it to come to a conclusion about something before just, you know, cutting it off as just simply black and white. Another thing I like about this book is it doesn't waste a whole lot of time of letting us, the reader, see these two in action. So it's going to start us off with a case with a family of mushroom farmers who say they heard a demon scream at an abandoned cottage. And he does a really, now I will say this, the author does a really good job of building these stories up. So even though it's through these letters, I'm telling you, you might think at first, like, well, how are you going to build all this stuff through letters? It, it works out really, really good. And so you get these letters from these mushroom farmers and they're, you know, asking, Doyle has a reputation, so they send it to him and they're asking for his help. And basically, it's kind of like the Ghostbusters, you know, they just go to them when they don't have anyone else to turn to. They know the cops aren't going to believe them. They can't go to the church. They just need someone who is a professional about these things to come and investigate what is going on. They're scared, you know, poor farmers, dumb, whatever, and they just don't know who else to turn to. So they turn to these two guys. So they talk about this story where there was a cottage out in the woods. Their son came back acting really strange. The mom followed him out there to try to figure out what was going on. They hear this demon scream from that cottage, and they just refuse to go back. And they're terrified. And now they don't know what is going on, what this demon did to their son. And they're just trying to piece this all together. They don't know if their family's in danger, their farm's in danger. And so they call up the boys. So John and Thomas, they go to the house. Uh, it does mention in there that they bring a gun and that they split up. And so... For me, that lets me know that these two guys are not, for one, uncomfortable around firearms and that they've been in situations where they've had to protect themselves using something like a firearm before because it was nothing unnatural for them. It was just a part of their normal setup. Hey, we go. One of us has a gun, and that's how we operate. So who has the gun? What's Thomas that has the gun? Because he's the hard-knuckled guy, right? So he's the one that's going to be the enforcer. There's also a lot of illusion and I will say not early on it wasn't until later that you really get the feel for him and his attitude and that he's generally unliked for being such a hard-nosed stern guy so they approach this cabin John goes inside he asks for Thomas to wait outside and Thomas is a little nervous as he's waiting outside and in his journal he talks about you know what he was thinking as John went inside and all the things that was going through his brain so that is cool that it's more than just a straightforward scene if it wasn't in letter format to where it would just be like, okay, this guy goes in a house, this guy weighs outside. We know that there's something crazy, some kind of screaming demon in there, whatever. So I did like that about the journal entries, that it was really able to flesh out the internals of what's going on with these guys as these scenes are taking place. And the author says on a website, I believe that he has a, a, a BA in psychology as well. So I think that probably plays into a lot, that he is able to tap into the actual you know, scientific, the, the science behind emotion and what people feel and why they feel it and, and all that as these characters are going through these different emotions. So pretty cool. Pretty cool. So while Thomas is waiting outside, he hears a scream. He hears a bunch of stuff going on, a bunch of banging, and it's a horrific scream. You know, he's starting to get scared. His freaking gun ends up going off because he's so nervous out there. And so we don't know what's happening to Doyle inside John. We don't know what's happening to him. You know, we don't know if that demon is tearing him apart or whatever. And I want to say that Doyle even said to him before he went inside, like, no matter what you hear, don't come inside. Maybe, maybe I'm misremembering that. 
I'm not sure. But there's a reason why he has a gun outside and he never comes in. I'm pretty sure it was at the direction of John is why he didn't. And then we find out when Doyle actually comes out of the house and he seems very much... He he is bothered, but he still has that very matter-of-fact scientific attitude saying that he was expecting this and he knew that this that this is what was going to happen and he ends up walking a man i can't remember if he walks the man out or if the man was inside but there's it it ends with saying these two women in white walk up and you know as the reader you're like wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute what the fuck is going on here again where it's in letter format you're kind of only getting bits and pieces which is a cool part of the book to kind of build that suspense you're getting a lot about their inside feels but you miss stuff about what's going on outside until you read the letters from the different characters. So pretty much Doyle comes out and he lets him know there was a, a man inside as a, an elderly man and his wife had died and he just lost his shit. He just lost his marbles, just went crazy. And he'd been in there taking care of his wife. So we don't know if this old man, they kind of go into whether he had dementia or he was living with his wife or he didn't have anyone else. And it just kind of bent his mind. And so he's in there just screaming or having to relive the death of his wife every day of, of, you know, some pretty mentally, some psychologically dark shit, you know, that this old man was going through. And so when people walk by and they would hear him screaming, the unnatural howling of this old, decrepit, dying man was terrifying. You know, they thought it was a, a demon or something. Another thing we learn is a lot of the prep work that these guys do before they show up. They don't just show up and just kind of wing it. We find out that Doyle is extremely intelligent. He checked a bunch of land records and all this other stuff. He knew where the house was. He knew who the owners was, or the last owner was, and their age and all that. And he just, uh, through his different deductions, he determined more than likely this is what was going on that it's not some type of uh, wood demon that's living inside this house yelling at people. So yeah, the case was solved. They figured it all out. There is another cool part that Doyle, you see him go through, uh, you know, even though it wasn't something scary, supernatural scary, it does go through his, I guess, kind of uh, PTSD that he goes through of having to see the decayed dead woman and the man losing his mind. And you see that it sticks with him. And he also talks about other cases that stick with him. Uh, Brahm even says in his letter that he's seen him go through stuff like this before, but never this bad. So you also understand that these guys are not just stone cold, you know, indifferent about these things. These cases actually affect them. So they do feel about this stuff. But also, I think John, just after reading the whole book, he's also bothered by this stuff because he wants to see a demon, too. You know, he's all, he also is just as upset that he went in there and it wasn't some kind of big, spooky, weird cabin tree forest demon. All right, shortly after this, we're introduced to another character, Scarlett Hanlon, and we find out that Scarlett is Brahms' niece. Now, she has been familiar with the kind of work they do. She wants to be a part of the work they do. But Doyle says that, you know, her youth and all this and her excitement and all that stuff really just kind of annoys him. But he also acknowledges the fact that she is extremely intelligent. And it talks about all her different academic accolades and all this stuff that make her, I believe she's 18, but that she is, he feels way smarter than the two of them when it comes to some of these cases and that she can prove extremely valuable when it comes to some of their investigations. However, with her being Brahm's niece, he doesn't want that relationship to get started, and he doesn't want Brahm to be upset or angry with him because he wants to involve his sister, or his, I'm sorry, his niece in some of these cases, and there's a whole big back and forth with that that goes throughout the whole book. So, if we're going to go into honest review mode, I will say that 
that part of the story, I didn't feel like it was totally necessary. Now, maybe it comes up later and it's more important in the books that follow this. That's a possibility. So I don't want to completely write it off. I understand it. It it feels natural in the book. But for me, I just felt like it was the annoyance of Doyle and Brom with her, I felt like was enough without having to add that secondary layer of you know, Doyle trying to keep a secret of secretly working with the niece sometimes, but not letting Brom know because he would get really mad and it would destroy their relationship and friendship and he would, you know, lose that part of his life. And we also get letters from Scarlet. Like I said, each one of these characters, we're going to have different journal entries from them. So there's a bunch of cool stuff in there from Scarlet where she's talking about how much she respects Doyle and how smart he is. And I think it's important in there too. There's one of the letters where he talks, where she talks about how he is kind of gossiped around town as being this, you know, playboy kind of individual that womanizes people and stuff like that. However, she notes in there that he has never been anything but professional with her. She's never seen that. And it's always just been about just the facts. What can you provide to this case? What can you bring? What kind of knowledge, information, and other viewpoint can you bring to what we are trying to? investigate. So I thought that was a cool point in there because with her being, them being much older, her being much younger, he's having secret conversations with her. I thought it was nice to kind of put that in there to just go ahead and throw that out that we know that's not going to be a part of the story of, you know, the duel's not a perv, <laughs> that he actually is all about his business. So I thought that was uh, a good, you know, a good throw in. So not long after this, we're introduced to Dr. Thornton and he has an old love of his, Cordelia. And this is going to be the bulk of our story throughout the rest of the book is what goes on between Thornton and Cordelia, mainly Cordelia. Cordelia is a young woman who falls extremely ill. She has this case that no one can figure out when she's been to multiple different doctors, given a bunch of different diagnoses. Some think it's a stroke. Some say that it's hormones. And she just shuts down. She goes through these different episodes of being extremely lethargic, just, you know, nothing behind the eyes to being ravenously hungry. Sometimes she talks to her family. Sometimes she lays in bed for days and weeks at a time and no one can figure out what's going on with her. So this Dr. Thornton guy, he eventually gets a letter from Cordelia's mother asking if he would come down and just see what's going on, see if he can help snap her out of this or diagnose her or help her with this problem. Now, Substory to this is that Dr. Thornton was in love with Cordelia way back in the day and the mom didn't really approve of their relationship. And then we find out later on that Cordelia is, her family is kind of this upper crust and the mom is having nothing to do with it. She is all about social status and does not want some poor flea bag hanging around her daughter or her family. So we get a little taste of that story and then we are hit with another investigation. The story could have just went on from there and started the Cordelia line, but I like that we got another investigation just to kind of see how these guys work, their thought process, how they interview. It just made it that much organic when they went to investigate the Cordelia case, which comes up later. But the second case they get into is that Doyle and Brom get a letter about a cabin where they believe they have a poltergeist. They say there's the house is shaking and there's stuff flying around the home and they just don't know what's going on. And it's all around town about what's going on. Everyone's scared to go there. And so the two go in, and it's cool in here because in the letters, you kind of see their plan as they go in. You kind of see how they're going to set this up. And you realize that when they go to question people, they're not always just super nice and believe them right away. They go in with an actual plan. Sometimes it's good cop, bad cop. Sometimes they come in and just straight out 
you know, are going to call them liars or whatever, but they go in with a plan to investigate based on what they've been told and what they can find out before they actually get there. So they go, they go to this family cottage to investigate the letter that they've written them to, you know, find out what's going on with this poltergeist activity. And again, there's going to be another spoiler here, but I feel like there's so much more book after all this that it's okay to give you this. So they go to this home, and they're talking to the fa- I can't remember. They're talking to one of the family members, and then all of a sudden the whole house starts to shake. A chair moves by itself, and they talk to the lady for a minute, and they take a, a walk outside. They say they're just going to go and walk around. And, of course, the two are talking back and forth about what they think it is and what they think it's not. And Doyle ends up just telling it. Doyle already has a plan. And, you know, unbeknownst to Brom that he's already walking around and he's already looking for something. So as they're walking around, they end up finding this underground tunnel thing and they end up going into it. And it's a really cool scene. It's, it's got some good buildup and then they're in this tunnel. It's quite a bit of ways from the house, but it's going in the direction of the home. And when they get to the end of this tunnel, what do they find? They find the kids under there and they're operating all these different apparatuses to make the house do all this weird shit. So, again... That's a big spoiler, but the book doesn't spend a whole lot of time on it. I think it's just setting up how these two operate together and their intelligence and how they're able to figure these things out. Also, their own personal beliefs about skepticism and what they hope to find when they go to investigate this kind of stuff, like what their motives are, their motivations, that kind of stuff. So when they find this out, there's two totally different reactions. And I think it's very telling and important for their character building that Brahm is pissed. He is super pissed off and actually wants to go and like talk to him about it and, you know, give him the what for about conning them, wasting all their time to come out there. And then you go to Doyle, who nothing is wasted for him. If nothing else, the experience has taught them what to look for in future people that are going to try to deceive them and con them. But he also says it debunks more supernatural stuff. And then they go into other reasons about why they, they even go into reasons about why the family would do this. They talk about the economic status, what's going on around town, people losing money, why these people would want all this attention and why bring in these investigators. Well, that's kind of what pisses Brahm off, too, is he's like, well, they brought us in thinking they could fool us. And to him, it's it's kind of a slight towards him. He's like, how dare they think that we wouldn't be able to figure this out? Well, at the end of the day, Brahm wasn't the one that figured it out. Doyle was. So I don't even the fuck he's talking about. He needs to chill out, you know. He is not the smartest guy in the room. And so Doyle says, you know, again, for him to just, hey, learn from this. It's important that we learn just as much from these things as we do from things that we can't explain. And I will say there's something in here where I think John is the one who mentions that he's Jewish. And I want to say that I've seen on the author, Chad Miller, on his Instagram, uh, he's put things on there about Jewish. So I don't know if any of that is coming through in the story. I'm just not, I'm not real familiar with uh the Jewish faith or anything like that. But however, if you are, I wonder if there's things in this story that, you know, would, would echo that belief system or things that you would pick up in there that would be more interesting to you. So yeah, I, you know, like I said, go to his Instagram, check his stuff out. And I just thought that was a cool call out from, you know, him as a real person and then the characters in the story. Uh, let's see, we're going to transfer into a scene here that I thought was pretty cool. And it's a very simple scene. And this is going to show the talent of the author, I'm going to say, in his story building. It's a very simple scene of making soup. And Doyle is making this soup, and he's asking Brom to taste it. And Doyle is asking him if it's correct. And Brom says, it's good. And then Doyle says, there is a difference between good and correct. And 
I don't know. To me, I just really enjoyed that scene. I like the point that it was trying to make. I don't know. As I say it on here, it doesn't sound that cool. But as you read the book, it's a really good scene. And again, it just kind of adds those layers and depth to these two characters and the way they think and how different it is. So they start to go into the Cordelia case, and John actually admits that he needs Scarlet to help him figure out more about what's going on with the, the Cordelia case. And this is where he actually admit, admits in his letters that not only is she smarter and more astute than him, but also Thomas. And because Thomas is the older, you know, brooding uncle that he's, he's just protective over her, he doesn't want her to do anything. And I want to say even he's kind of under the assumption of the, the thinking back then, like, well, you know, this isn't woman, this isn't women's work. She shouldn't be involved in this kind of stuff. It's not safe. And she may be intelligent, but she can't add anything to this because it's just too dangerous. So it's uh, it's good in these letters that we see the difference between these two. And I say it's, it it uh, notes it more near the end, not enough, but I have a feeling the second book is going to dive right. It's going to crack that wide open. Scarlet has a really beautiful line, one of her letters where it says, I feel all that I'm doing is learning about someone else's discovery rather than being a part of a new one. And she's when she says that, she's talking about college. Now, in college, it seems like for her, it's nothing. It might as well be grade school. She just breezes through it. None of it's difficult. And when she reads about all these other different things that she's learning about, that's what she's making a comment on. And I thought that was just a really cool line. You kind of see her her Braveheart mentality and, and wanting to be out there and just experience new things and find out the unknown and knowing that she has the power, the knowledge, and the potential to do so, but kind of being held back by her age and her gender and her uncle. So I just thought that was a really good line. I feel like a lot of us have felt that, that, you know, that you're learning about someone else's discovery rather than being a part of a new one. That could be said about your job, going to school, wherever you're at in your family, pecking order, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, really great line. I thought way too deep about it, but I, I, did, I did love that line. And that aspect of Scarlet's character. So here's where our mystery cranks up. We find out that there's a lot of connections between Dr. Thornton and Cordelia. Uh, also Doyle and Brom and, and all the characters. They kind of all have some skin in the game with this. And they want to find out what is going on because, oh shit, Dr. Thornton's gone missing. And he's been missing for three days. So how do they know that? Well, his sister sends a letter to the boys to try to figure out what is going on. She's worried. She doesn't know what to do since it's in a whole other part of, I can't remember if it's in another state or just another district or something like that, but it's not where they live. It's They will be outsiders in this place they have to go to. And with Dr. Thornton being a friend of theirs, it's personal. And let's see, honest review time. I will say at times the names got confusing. I, I had to write them down, which isn't uncommon. I get I've I've done that with plenty of other stories as well. So, but I, I think it's just where, with Doyle and Brom using their first names and last names, sometimes I got those confused. And then with Doctor Thornton, and there's a couple of other doctors, and it just you know who's who's a friend of who, who was a family member of who, and who we're speaking about at each time. And I want to say that's mainly because of the letters. Now that sounds really stupid, right? Because a letter is headed by the name of the individual. But what I mean is when they start talking about other people in their letters, we kind of forget where we're at in the story, you know, as in, let's say we're talking about the soup scene and then all of a sudden we're talking about Cordelia and what's going on with her. Well, maybe we were saying doctor in one sense, meaning one person. And then when we say it in this other letter, we're actually speaking about a different doctor. And at times, I guess it could get 
a little confusing, not enough to really throw me off. It's just where I had to actually think about it. Like, okay, who are we talking about here? And at this point, really, I don't want to, geez, I don't want to give more of the book away. But I will say, author Chad Miller, if you're listening to this, oh, you sneaky devil. Oh, you sneaky devil, you. I was reading through this book. I didn't realize it was part of a series. And I got to the end of the first book and I was like, what? Holy crap. I was just, oh gosh, I just wanted so much more. And, you know, obviously to get more, I'm going to have to get the second book. And I think that's okay. The first book is an awesome lead up to the second book. It definitely leaves you wanting more. At the end of this, you know, our our two guys here, our two detectives, they get into some really wild and crazy stuff here near the end. It's hard to talk about it without giving any, any of it away. But let's just say they do find Cordelia and her mother and they go to visit her. And when they do see her, all hell breaks loose. That's all That's all I'll say. It just gets wild really quick. And it's so different than the other two stories that they investigated that it really does turn up the tension and the speed and the page-turningness of the whole entire book. You know, so the last, I don't know, 80 pages, 50 pages, whatever it is like that, really just just changes into a whole different gear than the rest of the book. But like I said, the first part of the book is necessary to build up these characters, to let us know what they're all about, which makes the end part of this that much more realistic and really have some meat on its bones. But yeah, so that's going to be my rev- that's going to be it. That's going to be it for Prisoner of Fear. Uh, I enjoyed it. Author Chad Miller, great work in this. I'll have to get the next book to find out what happens to our crew because we are left on a cliffhanger. I think you can find that in other reviews, so I'm not revealing anything. But check it out. If you love these detective Sherlock Holmes style, uh, you know, X-Files kind of what's behind the curtain detective series, I think this one is awesome. It's got a hard horror edge to it that's not overtly grotesque, but also has a psychological and monster type feel to it. It just, it, it kind of hit all the right areas for me. And I, I found it super enjoyable. The detective angle to it was super, super cool. I really enjoyed that a lot. And these two characters are great. They're back and forth. And yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. So again, this is the Just James Horror Review. I'm Just James. If you have any comments or you want to send in something for me to review, or do you have a short story that you want me to read on the podcast, send that bad boy in at Podcast at gmail.com. I'll take a look at it. If I can use it, I'll absolutely put it on the show. And I have a great time doing this. If you want to come on the show and talk about some of your work, I'm game for that too. Let's schedule it up and have some fun on here. But that's it for today. I'm Just James. Take care. Thank you.